Why don't you open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. Hopefully everyone is doing well tonight. Definitely one of the high spots in my week is being here with you guys and fellowshipping and seeing your faces, that's for sure. But uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, we're picking up where we left off last week, halfway through the chapter. And, uh, and actually, before you even we get into that, keep your finger there in 2 Kings. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've kind of been talking about this a lot lately, and I just reread it this afternoon um, just to refresh my understanding of it, but remember that there's four things in Scripture that we're told not to be ignorant of, and uh, sadly, the church is ignorant of those four things, um, but Paul tells us there in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, just verse 1, just says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents." nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so as we're in the Old Testament, just a good reminder that uh, that uh, these these things were written for our example, that we should do what the good forefathers did and that we should not do what the bad forefathers did. <laughs> and, uh, and we're in the, the books of the kings, which show us a little bit of both, some of the good kings and the good things that they did, uh, but also some of the rotten kings and the, the rotten things we, they did. And we're going to read about some of those rotten kings um, tonight and learn from their examples. But you'll remember where we left off last week was that um, basically the king of Syria, ben, King Ben-Hadad II, uh, was, was, you know, just doing his thing. He's, he's part of God's tool in chastening Israel. And he uh, declared war on Israel and came down. Uh, he, he was setting up battle plans to go fight against Israel. And you remember that wherever he would go, someone always found out where he was and his battle plans would fail every time. And, and he was just frustrated. And he said, what do we got? Do we have a spy in our camp? Do we have a mole in our camp? 
And one of his servants says, no, there's no spy in our camp, but Elisha, the man of God in Israel, he tells the king of Israel, uh, you know, all of your secrets. He even knows the things that you tell your wife in your bedroom at night. You know, there's nothing that escapes the ears of the Lord. And the Lord is telling those things uh, to Elisha. And what a lesson for us, huh? You know, we think that we're so secretive and all of our schemings and all of our little secret sins and all of our, you know, uh, deceit, you know, but the Lord knows, you know, the Lord knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And, um, and so, you know, the king said, well, he knows everything about my battle plans. He knows, let's go get him then. And so he sends out a band of raiders down to Israel to get Elisha and surrounds Elisha's house, which is Basically, it was a house on a hill, surrounds this house on a hill. And uh, when Elisha's servant woke up in the morning and was going out and making the morning coffee, you know, and getting the scrambled eggs and the sausage ready, the Jimmy Dean, you know, uh, looks out the window. I'm adding all of that, by the way. It was probably hummus on a pita bread or something like that. But uh, looks out the window and sees a whole huge Syrian army surrounding the house. And he just... He, he was terrified. And remember, he said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He had this cry of utter hopelessness. And Elisha walks out and just no big deal to him. He looks out, sees the army. It's nothing new. And he just, he prays. And he prays and he says, Lord, open the eyes of this servant that he can see. And remember, immediately the, the servant's eyes were opened and he saw surrounding the house thousands and thousands, a whole army of, uh, of chariots and horses and an army of fire. And we did a whole study last week of how this was the army that the Lord wanted to fight for Israel since the beginning, since they became a nation. When they came up out of Egypt, you know, the Lord said, I don't want you to multiply horses and chariots because I don't want you to trust in them. I want you to trust in me to be the army that fights for you. And yet the kings of Israel just, they trusted in their own strength, in their own might, in their own horses and chariots. And Solomon started the multiplication of those things. And uh, the cool thing is, is that occasionally the Lord would fight for them anyways in his mercy and in his grace. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. And, and here we see the army of the Lord, who, who was the army of Israel, Elisha says a couple chapters earlier, the army of Israel surrounding these chariots of fire. So we did a whole study last week on how, you know, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world and the Lord's army and his angels. We did a whole study on the angelic realm and how, man, he is so powerful. He is so mighty. He is so ready and willing to fight for us if we'll allow him uh, that, man, we definitely want him on our side. And so, uh, but that's about where we ended last week at the end of verse 17, that the eyes of the young man were open. He saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and a fire all around Elisha. And in verse 18, it says, so when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So the army doesn't see the chariots of fire around and the army starts coming down on Elisha's house and he prays again. Remember, that's something we've, we've noticed about Elisha. He's quick to pray rather than quick to just let his fear consume him. He's quick to pray. 
And immediately these men were, this whole army was struck with blindness. And this is the same thing. We, we read it a few times in scripture. Remember when uh, the angels went down to Sodom to rescue Lot and the wicked uh, Sodomites of Sodom, which is where that name come from, wanted to have their way with these angels. And remember they pressed up against the house and were trying to tear the door down. And uh, the angels of the Lord there struck these wicked, just uh, horrible men with blindness and gave them a chance to run out of there. And we also see, remember, when Saul was out seeking to destroy the church in the book of Acts, as he was going around, the Lord struck him with some temporary blindness. And um, so, you know, here's just another example. This whole army struck with blindness Uh, Verse 19, now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So, you know, just imagine being part of this army. You know, you you come down and pretty good sized band of raiders. And all of a sudden you're going down upon this house and you go blind. You know, put yourself in these guys' shoe. And so there, you know, trying to feel around and which, who's this? What friend, you know, feel my face. It's me, Billy, you know, and, and, you know, where are we? I don't know. And just no doubt, just total hectic chaos going on. And uh, here comes Elisha. Hey, don't worry guys. Hey, you're in the wrong town. This isn't the right place. Follow me. And I don't know how they did this or what they were, you know, but uh, apparently, you know, the, the train that you do at all the wedding dances, you know, where they grabbed each other's hips and they just started following Elisha, you know, the, the, uh, the one man leading this whole army and they follow him about, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 miles away, uh, to Samaria from, from, uh, that area. So imagine what a hike, huh? <laughs> uh, you just wonder what was going through their minds. I don't know what they were planning on doing once they got there and, and capturing Elisha, but anyways, he took them on the way there in verse 20. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And, and so we've got King Jehoram, the, the king of Israel here. Uh, and, and he was kind of a weird guy, kind of like King Saul. You know, he didn't really like Elisha. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little more, more about it later when we see some other things he does with, uh, with Elisha. But he didn't really like him uh, because, because King Jehoram was a wicked man and, King, and Prophet Elisha was a righteous man. And yet here we see him calling him my father, you know. All of a sudden, you're my friend, you know, as you lead this whole army blindly uh, right into Samaria. And he says, you know, should, should I kill this whole army? Should I kill him? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Should I kill them? They're all right here. If you delivered them in my hand to, to slaughter them? No, no, don't slaughter them. You know, would you slaughter a bunch of POWs that just surrendered? Maybe he would have. You know, He was a wicked guy. Um, but you know, these guys didn't even surrender. These are guys that were led here peacefully. 
And so, you know, give them food and water that they could eat and drink and be refreshed after this 20-mile blind hike and let them go back to their masters. And, and uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, you know, kind of gives us some similar instruction on how to treat our enemies. You know, it says, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. Or if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Now, a lot of people think, well, that doesn't sound too nice, you know. Um, And the idea is you'll share your fire with this person. You know, you'll share warmth. You'll share your hope. You'll share your passion with this person. Now, you know, you can't take that to one extreme and say that the Lord never uses um, war. To fight against our enemies. Read, you know, Romans chapter 13. We know that the Lord uses governments and armies to, as a minister, uh, to, to fight against the armies of wickedness. And yet, even in the midst of those times, there's great opportunities in warfare to share your fire with your enemy and to love your enemies and speak the truth to your enemies. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, Jesus even, you know, he, he said the same principle when he said on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he, he says, you know, the Pharisees, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Those don't sound like good things to, to have done to you. Have, have you guys ever had someone use you? you know, or treat you spitefully? Have you ever had anyone persecute you? You know, and in those cases, have you ever loved them? You know, have you ever esteemed them as better than yourself? Have you ever looked out for their interests and, and uh, encouraged them? But he says, you know, do that, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And we need to love those who in our flesh are unlovely. And, you know, the best example of that is what Jesus has done for us. He's always the best example, isn't he? You know, uh, you you read Romans and, and it just talks about how, you know, while we were still sinners... Missing the mark, just reveling in our own depravity and filthiness and stench, you know, the stench of sin, that Jesus loved us and died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that, you know, through the cross, he put to death the war that was between us and him. He put to death the enmity. And so, man, it's just just an encouraging thing on two different levels. For one, if you're at war with God tonight because of your sin and your filthiness, those things war against God's holiness, that tonight you can come to the cross and receive the forgiveness of sins, and that war will be put to death, and there will be peace between you and God. You know, on another level, man, there's, there's, you know, an interesting love relationship we can have with our enemies on this side of heaven. So um, those that spitefully treat you and use you and hate you and uh, we're to love on them, just like Jesus loved on us as we were blaspheming his name. So 
you know, just love on these guys that I just led on a, on a weird little, you know, on a weird little march through the woods, you know, love on them and feed them and heat burning coals on their head. Uh, King Jehoram and verse 23, then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master, Ben, Ben Hadad. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Syria. So no doubt these you know, prisoners, in a sense, were just, you know, amazed at the love that they were shown. Here we had come down to take your prophet and to kill him or, you know, to kidnap him. And you showed us such love. You could have totally killed us. And so these raiders went back home and they didn't raid anymore. Now the, um, you know, the warm, cozy feelings there in these guys' hearts, you know, it didn't last in the king's heart, in King Ben-Hadad, because immediately we, we read in verse 24 that after this, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So the, the warm, cozy feelings towards Elisha, Ben-Hadad didn't have them. It said, let's go get them again. And, you know, it's interesting because Ben-Hadad, he sent Naaman down to Israel, his, his number one general with leprosy. One of the most famous men in Syria. Hey, Naaman, go down to Israel and get healed in Israel. All right. Oh, man, we love those Israelites, you know. And then pretty soon, you know, wow, we sent a band of raiders down there and they were sent back unharmed. In fact, totally, you know, hospitality, hospitality was shown to them. Wow, that's so nice. Let's get them, you know, and immediately turns around um, and, uh, and besieges uh, I guess that's the plural for that, besieges, uh, Samaria. Now, to besiege something speaks of to surround the city. And um, I was going to bring a picture, but I totally forgot. The Samaria, the capital of Israel, was built on a hill. So go home, uh, those of you Bible students, bibleplaces.com, okay? I frequent it. You can frequent it too. It's really fun. Um, but go to, and just go to Samaria and you'll see the hill that's spoken of here. Just interesting to, to just, man, to flip back to where this hill was surrounded by Syrian warriors and a siege man was sent up against it. And basically what's happening here is food is cut off to this hill. Water is cut off to this hill. You know, there's no ability to get ammunition or send out to the rest of the nation for help. Uh, the, there's this uh, siege sent up, set up against Samaria. This is Israel's capital. And then here's where we get to s- some crazy stuff. Verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria. You know, there's, there's no way to get any food. So you're stuck in on this hill, this great famine in Samaria. And indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings was sold for five shekels of silver. So the inflation of things were so grotesque, you know, uh, you would eat uh, these things that just normally wouldn't have been eaten. You know, and a donkey was, was a domesticated animal. It was this animal, animal that, you know, um, it, it was a good thing to have. It, it was kind of like a puppy or something, you know, it was a little helpful puppy that could carry things for you. And so if it came down to killing your donkey uh, and it came down to you've eaten everything on the donkey, you're down to the head. 
That's just not pleasant. I don't know if any of you have gone to foreign countries and ventured into some of that <laughs> stuff. I haven't, so um, just not into it. But uh, interesting that we read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 that a whole horse that you could ride around was sold for 150 shekels at one point. You could buy a whole horse, you know, um, as a tool, you know, or as a racing buddy, you know, I don't know, uh, for 150 shekels. Here it's so inflated to just buy the head of this nasty, you know, not a good meal uh, is, this, is this huge wage here. But then you've got um, this basically a half a liter of dove dung. You know, am I the only one that, you know, you guys are kind of quiet tonight. I was thinking for, I guess I'm used to high schoolers, you know, dove dung. Oh, gross. You know, you guys are like, oh yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Sometimes I get hungry. And, okay. Um, anyways, but uh, this half a liter of dove dung would cost about six months wages of an average worker. So that's the inflation that they're dealing with there. Now, Thank goodness that the doves were clean animals, <laughs> you know. Uh, it wasn't the hoot owl that you'd be picking out. Okay, um, sorry. Moving on. Science in the seventh grade was so much fun. That's all I have to say. But, uh, you know, so, so that's what the prices of the food was in that day. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my Lord, Oh, king. So here this woman comes to the king, you know, with a cry for justice that, you know, quite a few kings ago, about nine kings ago in the day of Solomon, the women would come to Solomon and cry out for justice and they would find justice at the hand of this very wise king. And, and during a part of his reign that, you know, wisdom marked the reign of King Solomon. But here about nine kings later, they've got this wicked King Jehoram who it's an empty cry for justice. It's long gone. You're not going to find it with this king. And so she says, you know, uh, or he says, verse 27, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you from the threshing floor or from the wine press? You know, and, and notice who he's blaming this famine on. Who's he blaming it on? He's blaming it on the Lord. You know, but he knows who's responsible for this famine. He is. And his father is. And his father's father. These wicked kings. Where the promise was put before to these kings. That if you will obey my commandments. And walk in my statutes. And love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then I'll bless you. And you look at the beginning of King Solomon's reign when he did just that and how there was so much wealth. You know, no other kingdom had seen wealth like the first part of King Solomon's. Do you remember when we studied that? Do you remember in 1 Kings where there was so much silver around? If you were to, to find silver on the ground, it was like finding a pebble on the ground. You know, don't waste your energy picking it up. Not needed. And then as these kings would get worse and worse, and worshiping these idols that called for child sacrifice and sexual immorality and uh, just worse and worse and worse, the snowball, you know, clear down to King Ahab and his son, you know, Jehoram here, uh, you know, it, it was their fault. Because you read that, you know, 
famine is going to be brought because of your sin. You know, it was their fault. It wasn't the Lord's fault. The blame didn't go to God. And we talked about this last week, how, you know, when people are having the consequences of their sin come upon them, they always blame the Lord rather than turning to the Lord in repentance. And, uh, you know, would you find help there at the threshing floor, which is where they separated the wheat from the chaff or clear over at the wine press where they squeeze the wine from the grapes? You're not going to find help there. There's no help for you, ladies. No help at all. What, a, what an encouraging king, you know? Like, they don't really care about, he doesn't really care about the morale of the country. And, uh, but, you know, he humors her in verse 28 and says to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, prepare yourself, guys. <laughs> she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And if you uh, look at Leviticus 26, let's just flip back there. Obviously, you, know, you thought that the donkey's head and the olive droppings was bad. You know, obviously, it just it got worse and worse. But in Leviticus chapter 26, it's just a good chapter to have in mind as we work through the kings. And you remember just that promise that the Lord always had for Israel. If you obey me, there is blessing. If you disobey me, there is judgment. And, you know, I've been challenged by that. You know, I don't think of you guys. I think of myself. Rory, if you obey me, such blessing will come upon you and your family and the church and Prineville. You can't even imagine the blessing. But Rory, if you're disobedient and you harden my heart, there will be judgment. You know, you're going to face the consequences of that. And we've seen the kings deal with that. And, you know, I've been trying to teach my son that, you know. After times of correction with him, Russell, remember, if you obey, there's blessings. You know, if you disobey, Lindsay goes, judgment, you know, like judgment or correction, <laughs> you know. And, um, and I was just going to read one verse out of here, out of Leviticus or a couple verses, but let's just, just check out. Let's just kind of skim for a second from verse 1 of Leviticus 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere a uh, reverence in my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing floor shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land in safety. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I'll rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Uh, your enemy shall fall by the, the sword before you. And you can just keep reading and just reading of the blessings that'll happen. And, 
And, you know, not, not only will you not have famine, but, you know, the, the, the threshing floor will have wheat. You know, the, the wine press will have wine. And, uh, you know, not only will there not be armies surrounding the hill, but, you know, you'll be chasing those armies out. But then look, you know, as we just reflect on the difference of where we're at now in 2 Kings, just check out verse 27 and 29. You know, but after all of this, uh, I'm sorry if I made you go back to 2 Kings. I meant Leviticus chapter 26 still, but I'll just read it to you. After all of this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And so just the, you know, the downward spiral that sin leads us to as these people just won't repent of their sin. The Israelites not leading to their sins, you know, so... Here we have Israel, uh, you know, being attacked in, in this famine where they're eating their sons and daughters. And then in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10, we see that later on in Judah's history, when Babylon comes and encamps against Judah, that listen to what, you know, as Jeremiah laments over Judah's captivity by Babylon. This is what he writes. You can just hear him weeping as he writes it. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. You just hear him weeping that compassionate women are, are, have, resort, have resorted to this. It just kind of reminds you of Deborah. You know, if, if this woman, Deborah, you know, if, if women like Deborah would have stood up and said, we need to repent of our idolatry. You know, King Jehoram, you know, we need to repent of our idolatry. Don't you see we're surrounded because of this and this is what we've resorted. Even if a woman would have raised up and been bold like Deborah, the, the prophetess in the book of Judges, uh, you know, that the Lord would have relented and revival would have happened. But, uh, but they didn't. But these women, you know, they, they resorted to this. And, uh, and so verse 30 you know, and, and no doubt these women, this woman comes to the king remembering the story about Solomon. Remember when those two women had an issue with each other and came before Solomon and uh, one woman had rolled over and, and smothered her child. And you remember the whole thing and Solomon and his wisdom just brought down the, you know, the, the wise judgment there that solved the problem. And no doubt this woman is thinking this wise king will solve the problem, but he's not a wise king. He's a wicked king. And verse 30, so it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall and the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. And so as the king was walking on the wall, he had all of his you know, special robes and crown and all that. And on the outside, he looked like, I've got it all under control. I'm the king, you know, I'm, I'm ruling and reigning and I'm doing well, but as he tears his clothes, you see that the underwear that he was wearing was, was, were garments of mourning, that he had been sorrowful over the nation's condition. And so we see that he had been spending time crying. He'd been spending time tearing you know, his garments and throwing dust on his head. 
But just like as we just went through this time of fasting and we read what Joel said, you know, that the Lord doesn't want these outward appearances of mourning, you know, rip my clothes. Oh, this is horrible. He wants our hearts to be mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Look at your sin and be sorrowful over your sin. You know, now that we're on this side of the cross, and we know the, the great price that Jesus paid for us shedding his blood. How can we any longer go on in our sin and our sinful practices without being sorrowful that that sin nailed Jesus to the cross? Lord forbid that I continue on in these things that, that brought you know, the need for this sacrifice. I don't want to trample, as Hebrews says, as I willingly sin, trample the blood of Jesus underfoot. I don't want that to be said of me. Man, I want to rip my heart and Lord, bring that type of a heart. And, uh, you know, we, we studied as we listened to um, James McDonald as we watched that video a couple weeks ago. He talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Corinthians sorrow over their sin. As they went through that whole church discipline process with the man who uh, was living in immorality with his stepmom. And Paul rebuked the man and rebuked the church, you know, for not dealing with this issue. And, uh, but we see second Corinthians chapter seven, that man, and, and, and I'll just read this, you know, Paul says in chapter seven, verse nine, you know, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And then listen to this. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And what kind of sorrow did King Jehoram have here? Sorrow of the world. It was just, oh, I'm really sad that these people are going through this, but what can be done? <laughs> you know, that was worldly sorrow that was leading to death, the death of his people, the death of these children. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself clear in this matter. And so you just look back at King Jehoram walking in the, on the wall, ripping his garments. Oh, I'm mourning for you guys. Real sorry that you had to do that with your kids. And, but imagine if he would have ripped his heart and examined the sin of not only him, but his fathers who were worshiping Baal, you know, worshiping Shamash, sacrificing their kids on an altar to Shamash, sexual immorality with, um, you know, with, Ashtoreth, pagan worship going on. Imagine, could you imagine if, if there was another book in our Bible that was not Lamentations, but the opposite of that? I don't know. What's the opposite of Lamentation? Rejoicentations or something. I don't know. A book like that that was, oh, you're, you repented. Oh, Jehoram, the godly sorrow. What clearing of yourself. What vehement desire. In other words, you're on fire for God. You know, wow, you know, what a light you are to the other nations, Israel. 
right on Jehoram for repenting. But no, they wouldn't repent. And so the prophets had to write letters of weeping. You know, you're, you're eating your children. What are you thinking? These things are written for our examples, aren't they? You know, that we might not do the same things, that we might not worship idols as others worshiped idols. Verse 31, um, you know, he rips his clothes and then he says, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Again, who is he blaming the problem on? It's Elisha's fault, that dirty, rotten, you know, he's the one that's calling for the famine. He is the oh, that, you know, again, he, he's pointing the finger when, when, you know, a thousand fo- fingers are pointing back on him. And he uses God's name in vain, you know, God do so to me. Oh, God's on my side. I'm swearing by God here, you know, just like I rip my garments. He can rip me apart if Elisha's head's still on his body by sundown. Verse 32, but Elisha, you know, where's Elisha at, you know? He's not sitting over there, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> you know, my scheme to destroy King Jehoram. is No, he, he's over there sitting in his house with the elders and the kids of the prophet school, you know, just like hanging out, talking. Um, he's sitting at his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, you know, he just gets this revelation while talking to the elders. Do you see how the the son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And, uh, you know, Elisha just totally tuned into God. You know, spending time with the elders. You know, what were they doing together? No doubt worshiping the Lord, talking about the word, talking about the goodness of God, discussing what's going on in Israel, you know, and as he's just in fellowship with God and in fellowship with his brothers, uh, the Lord reveals this to him, specific stuff, you know, he knew that his head was going to be taken. He knew King Jehoram sent a messenger, you know, and and notice he calls King Jehoram the son of a murderer. Who, Who was he the son of? Ahab, you know, the son of this murderer. And, uh, you know, when he comes in, you know, hold him up against the door. And then the king's right behind him. Verse 33, and while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Again, he blames it on the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And, uh, you know, so Elisha just tuned in to the Lord, just a normal thing for him to just have this revelation. I, do you guys want to be like that? <laughs> I do. I'm not. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm not. <laughs> I want to be. I'm tuned into a lot of other stuff. You know, I want to be tuned into the Lord like he was. I want to be, you know, when the servant is, ah, we're surrounded by an army. Ah, what are we going to do? Oh, don't worry about it. You know, Lord, open his eyes. You know, look, there's chariots of fire all around it. Second, you know, first nature really to just, see those types of things and to have those types of visions. And, uh, and so again, you know, blame it on the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Why should I listen to his prophet? And uh, everyone doing well? Are you sure? I'll stop if you want me to stop. I mean, you know. want to take a vote? I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 7. Then Elisha said, 
Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now, maybe you'll get your pen out, and every time you hear thus says the Lord or hear the word of the Lord, mark that maybe with an A or something, because then later on in the chapter, we're going to hear, we're going to read as the word of the Lord had said. And we're going to see the accomplishing of these prophecies. And so uh, you might just put some marks in your Bible. Be students tonight. And so Elisha says, here comes the king. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You know what? Let me prophesy for you right here, buddy. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, you're going to be able to buy a whole bunch of flour and a whole bunch of barley for nothing. And you remember last week we talked about how it was just the opposite. You're spending just months wages for, and then even this week, you know, a donkey's head, you know, or a half a liter, of, you know what. And, uh, but by tomorrow at this time, wheat and grain, you know, barley, it's going to be worth, you know, you can just practically get it for free. And, uh, and so an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so this man, this officer, this, you know, pretty high up guy, maybe he's the one who took Naaman's place, you know, uh, you know, someone whom the king, you know, he, the king counted on this guy. Uh, a close officer, uh, you know, doubts the word of the prophet. And this is what we need to know about the scriptures and the words of these prophets. To mock the prophetic word is to mock the Lord himself. It's exactly what's going to happen in this chapter. You mock God's word, man, you're in the danger zone, you know. And man, on the day I see the Lord face to face, I want to be able to say, Lord, I took your word too literally. You know, Lord, I I took your word too much at face value. You know, I I don't want to be just liberal with my interpretations of the scriptures, but, but Lord, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I just took your word too literally. This officer did not, but rather he doubted the prophetic word. James chapter one, if you want to flip over there, Verse six, it's okay if you don't, maybe just write the reference there uh, in the margin of your Bible. But James says this, specifically when, when asking for wisdom, but he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a, you guys know it? He who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed about by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. What a, wor- what a word for us, huh? That's for a man that's to ask for wisdom. What a- Lord, give me wisdom. I don't really know if you'll give it to me. Hey, don't let that guy receive anything. He's an unstable man. Lord, I want to be stable. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, <laughs> you know? Lord, you say through Elisha, who we've already seen all the other incredible works that you've done at Elisha's hand, you say that tomorrow at this time, you know, there's going to be, you know, food in abundance for this nation. (laughs) Amen, Lord. I can't wait to see it. But we see this officer, this Syrian officer, he's a double-minded man, not a good man. 
Don't let him suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. And don't you love what Elisha says to him? Oh, you'll see it, but you're not going to eat of it. You're not going to get to reap of the benefits of this. You know, um, like what Sandy Adams says, you know, are we only going to believe what our flesh can figure or our mind can muster? You know, is that all we're going to believe as Christians? Well, the way I figure it, the way my calculator works things out or the way that I can see things, uh, that's all I can really believe. That's not what faith is, you guys. That's not what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the substance of things unseen. Or faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. You know, faith is what gives us mass, you know, basically to what we hope for. You know, it helps us to grab onto those things. It gives us grip on those things that we can't see. You know, Romans tells us that, you know, there's one thing to, to hope for what we see, but if we hope for what we don't see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're so eager, like an adopted child that hears that he's going to get adopted and he's just waiting for those parents to come. He can't see him, but man, he's at the window. Just, is today going to be the day that, that my parents come to get me? Eagerly waiting for perseverance. I don't know about you, but when I buy something online nowadays, um, you know, which isn't a lot, but at least don't tell Lindsay it's not a lot. But, uh, you know, when I buy something online, most of the fun is waiting for it to get there. You know, I like to go on UPS tracking and be like, oh, it's in Chicago now, or oh, it's in, you know, it's just like, oh, and then when it gets there, you're like, darn, <laughs> you know, should I even open it? Should I send it back and then have them send it back? Uh, the fun is waiting for it, you know? Could you imagine going through this famine in Samaria? Is it ever going to end? It's never going to end. We're going to die. People are eating their kids. Hey, tomorrow at this time, flour will be everywhere. How's it going to happen? Should have been what this officer said. Oh, the miracle that's going to bring this about. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see the hand of the Lord. No, if there were windows in heaven, could the thing happen? I don't think so. When actually God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, when dealing with tithes and offerings, you know, he says that, uh, test me in this one thing. Give to the Lord, you know, more than your tithes and your, you know, give with your heart to the Lord. And I'll open up the windows in heaven that all of the storehouses on this earth won't be able to contain the blessings that, that I'm going to pour out on you. Isn't it interesting that Malachi uses that? I wonder if he's thinking of this uh, officer, the Syrian officer here. But, uh, you know, even if God was able to open up all the windows, hey, you know what? God is able to open up all the windows of heaven. You know, what a word for us today, too. Um, you know, just going back to that study we did a few, uh, maybe it was months ago now, on, you know, that, that we're not to be storehouses for God's treasures, but we're to be distribution houses for God's treasures. You know, he brings them in, we send it out. He brings it in, you know, the more we send out, the more he brings in so we can send out more. And, um, you know, and that's, that's one way that the windows of heaven open up. So how do you guys think the Lord's going to open the windows here in 2 Kings? How do you think these, that the flour is going to be so cheap and the barley? Some of you have read that don't cheat, you know. What's going to happen? Um, it really is an exciting story. You got to love it. Somehow, somehow I'm flipping all around here. Dogs eat Jezebel. Okay, I don't know how I got there. Uh, you know, is it, 
you know, oh, you'll, you'll see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there, here's how it happens, guys. It's so exciting. You couldn't write a better movie plot. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. Four leprous men. The, the Lord uses these four leprous men who don't have a hope in the world to bring about this uh, end of the famine. Four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we're going to die here of starvation and leprosy. Now, therefore, come, let us go surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live. We'll have food to eat. If they kill us, we'll only die. You know, they have nothing to lose. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they'd come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Imagine four lepers, unclean, you know, like dragging themselves into this camp. Ow, you know, my arm just fell off. You know, that's what happens with leprosy. Um, there's a song about it, but I'm not going to sing it to you. You know, and here they come to this, the tents and, you know, all the tents, just as far as the eye can see. And what's, what are they going to do to us? I don't know. Let's go. What have we got to lose? If we die, we die. If we live, we live. Yeah, you know, they go in there. Hello? Hello? Cricket, 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 cricket. You know, like nobody's here, guys. I mean, just imagine the scene. No one was there. Verse 6, for the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Who do you think they heard? You know, did the four lepers have coconut shells, you know? Yes, that is what happened. Man, didn't we just read, you know, the first the chapter ago about these chariots of fire and how Elisha called these chariots of fire Israel's army? You know, no doubt that was terrifying. I mean, imagine seeing it, but imagine, you know, just the noise be like, let's get out of here, guys. You know, just running for your life. I mean, I love that, that the Lord, and he does that all the time. You know, he did that with King Asa. He did that with King Jehoshaphat. You know, he did that. Um, oh, he's done that so many times, just showing himself strong on Israel's behalf, even in their sin. Verse 7, therefore they, they arose and they fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Run for your lives. Save yourself. And when these lepers came out to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank. I mean, what a party I'm sure that they were having. Chicken wings, guys. Uh, Oh, gosh, you know, and not to mention they were lepers. So even before the famine, they were living out in the slums of the city. No one loved them. They hadn't had a good meal, a hot meal in in years, years and years, no doubt. And uh, I mean, they're just like, praise God, you know. Uh, just eating and drinking, and they carried from it this tent, silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also, and they went and they hid it, totally taken plunder. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. 
If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. I like these guys. I don't know if you like them, but, you know, they're pretty smart. We're going to die anyways. We might as well go out there and see what will happen. Then when they get there, they're kind of, you know, if it were me and I was one of these lepers, I'd be like, forget those jerks in the city. I'm a leper and they've treated me like scum. You know, I'm going to eat. I'm going to hide this gold, you know, and then I'll go back to my gate, you know, and, and uh, you know, but, but they, they had a conscience on them. You got to give them that. Um, so they went and told the king's household in verse 10. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them saying, we went out to the Syrian camp and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his, you know, they're setting up an ambush is what they're doing. Don't believe the lepers. Don't go out there. One of the servants answered and said, please let several men take, you know, five of the remaining horses, which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Again, you know, we've got nothing to lose. Send some people out there to see what happened. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king, and the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according, you got your pen out, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. Now, that's not a good place to be if a, if a city is in such famine that they're eating their own children and there's a whole bunch of warm chicken wings, you know, out there. In the, you don't want to be the guy in charge of the gate because, yes, exactly that. The people trampled him in the gate and he died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened uh, just as the man of God had said saying two seahs of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So it happened to him for the people trampled him on the ground and he died. And man, don't you just love that? Don't you love reading that according to the word of the Lord or just as the man of God said? I mean, not only in, you know, what we've read, you know, for, for matters of holiness, as the Lord says, man, if you obey, blessing. That's what the Lord says. You believe it? If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, judgment. You know, there will be a day, and, and for some it's happened already, that that those words, just as the word has said, 
It's happened to our loved ones. You know, they've either experienced the blessing of eternity with Jesus in heaven, or they're experiencing the judgment because of their disobedience. You know, but, but man, also, what about our studies on Sunday mornings lately? You know, as the Lord is giving us the signpost to look for his coming, that it's going to be soon to watch, to be looking up. The son of man is coming in an hour you know not. Oh, even if the heavens open, could, even with the current events in world history, could, any, could it happen tomorrow? No way. You know, do you sound like this officer? <laughs> no way. You know, it just, it just couldn't happen. But man, I don't want to be that one. I don't want to be the one doubting. The wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. And so, man, I'm just, again, I'm reminded, First uh, Peter, oh man, and it just happens to be missing from my Bible. Let's see if I can remember it. Hi. <laughs> they would have eaten it. First uh, Peter, I believe it's chapter 3, verse 5, or something like that. You know, we read it on Sunday. That the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some consider slackness, but he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. You know, and then it goes on to talk about the end times and his coming again. And if we believe that he's really going to come again, you know, what manner ought we to be living in holiness and godly conduct? Because he says he's coming. I don't want to be that wicked servant saying in my heart, he's not coming and, and, and living life of impurity. I want to be like Elisha, tuned into him, quick to pray. You know, I want to be a good friend like Elisha. You know, I want to be a faithful servant like Elisha. And so we'll go ahead and have uh, Stuart come on up and let's just respond to the word. You know, let's just, man, let's sing to the Lord. You know, I, was, I was talking to Russell today and as he woke up from his nap and I said, Hey Russell, let's pray together for tonight for the, you know, for the Bible study. And he goes, Oh yeah, we're going to go to the chapel and, uh, but I'm not going to sing, you know, why aren't you going to sing? And on Sunday morning we were sitting in the back and I was holding him and we were singing, Oh, the wonderful cross, you know, and Lindsay and I were, were holding up our hands and he goes, I'm not seeing Oh, wonderful cross with hand in air, you know? <laughs> and he goes, I go, why not? He's all, cause Jesus was, he was, like that, and so I not seeing. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, that Jesus like that. I not seeing wonderful cross. You know, and I'm just like, son, like Jesus loves us. He wants to sing. You know how Daddy sings to Roro. You know, yeah. Well, Roro sing to Jesus in love. No, I not do that. You know, and so just trying to. Oh, you know, man, Lord, I need to start worshiping more around my son at home and just normal. You know, just being a good example and. But how many of us are like that? No, I don't sing. You know, Jesus is prompting me. I don't know what he was saying, but Jesus is prompting me to sing to him. But no, I'm not going to do it. You know, let's worship him. Let's, you know, there's one song that I've been singing lately. It's a Starfield song. And it just sings, you know, your word stands true. There is none like you. You remain. And all day I've been singing that. According to your word, Lord, your word stands true. No pressure, Stuart. I know you don't know that one, but, <laughs> but man, may we just, you know, in our hearts, just, oh Lord, you're prompting us to worship you. You know, you know, the psalmist says, uh, you know, that God says, I esteem my word above my name. You know, that's how pure his words are. The psalmist also says that the words of the Lord are pure. 
like silver refined in the furnace of the earth seven times. And man, that we would just worship the Lord. You know, his word stands true. There's no one else like him. Baal and Chamash and Ashtoreth, these false gods, these pagan, sick and twisted gods. There's none like them. And Lord, your word stands true tonight. There's none like you. Lord, your promises for eternal hope, eternal life, salvation. Your promises for blessings on those that will obey you. And judgment on those that will disobey you. They're going to come to pass. But Lord, we want to be on your side. We want to be walking in obedience. Help me, Lord. If for nobody else here tonight, I know this is for me. Help me not be ashamed at your coming. We cast down other gods tonight. Anything in our life, Lord, show us tonight those other gods. Show us just the worship disorders in our lives, Lord. Where we run to pleasure, or people, or buzzes, or rushes, or attentions, rather than running to you, Lord. We want to worship you and you alone. And maybe you're here tonight and you, you're an enemy of the Lord as you walked in those double doors. Maybe you just, you felt something about you, you were out of place or there's something in your heart that just doesn't seem right. Maybe if you're honest, you're an enemy of the Lord. Your sin is separating you from God and you're at enmity or war against him. Hey, tonight, run to Jesus. Run to the cross where he shed his blood for your sin. And like Ephesians says, he put to death that war. That you could have fellowship with Him. You could have communion with Him restored. And maybe tonight you came in an enemy and you didn't take communion. And tonight you can just surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can receive the sacrifice for your sins. You can be born again and made anew. And you can come up to this, after, this evening and grab communion. And just as you eat the, the bread, just you're receiving Jesus' broken body that he broke on your behalf. Or as you drink the juice, you're receiving his blood that was shed. And that tonight you'd be found in Christ. Maybe you took communion and you took it amiss. And tonight you want to come and grab the cup and the bread again and You can just let this be tonight, just peace offerings. And you can receive the sacrifice for your sin that was shed on Calvary. But wherever we're at tonight, let's worship the Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, 
Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.